Welcome to In and Around War, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights on contemporary issues related to wars. Episode 1 explores the relationship between war and terrorism in a conversation with Professor Gloria Gaggioli, alumna and current director of the Geneva Academy. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Geneva Academy's podcast series In and Around Wars. My name is Paola Gaeta, and I'm a professor of international law at the Geneva Graduate Institute. And I also teach international criminal law at the LLM program at the Geneva Academy. And today I'm co-hosting this episode with Antonio Coco. Hello, Paola, and welcome to our listeners. I am Antonio Coco. I teach international law at the University of Essex, but I'm also a former student, an alumnus of the Geneva Academy, and I used to be a teaching assistant at the Geneva Academy during my PhD. So this podcast series explores uh, contemporary issues related to wars. And in each episode, we will be interviewing alumni of the Geneva Academy LLM program, alumni who now work on these issues as practitioners or as academics. In this first episode, we will explore the relationship between war and terrorism, in particular by addressing the issue of military operations carried out abroad by states against armed groups which are labeled as terrorists. And as we know, counterterrorism, uh, military operations by states against armed groups uh, located in foreign territory have been a recurrent practice in international relations, but they have acquired a broader dimension and significance after the 9-11-2001 terrorist attacks in the U.S. And let's remind our listeners that in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, the former president of the United States, George W. Bush, had announced a comprehensive plan to seek out and stop terrorists around the world, which was known by everyone as the global war on terror. The wars in Afghanistan and partially the war in Iraq were part of this new United States strategy. Let's hear some key passages of the speech of George W. Bush uh, to the United States Congress announcing the new global war on terror. The enemy of America is not our many Muslim friends. It is not our many Arab friends. Our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. So now let me introduce our guest. Uh, we have the pleasure to discuss uh, some of the issues concerning war and terrorism by interviewing Professor Gloria Gaggioli, who is the current director of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights and a renowned expert in international humanitarian law. For the past few years, Professor Gaggioli has been leading a research project called Counter-Terror Project, a Legal Empirical Approach, uh, which was funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation and hosted by the University of Geneva. Welcome, Gloria. We are very, very happy to have you with us today and to kick off this podcast series with you. 
Hello, Antonio. Hello, Paula. And uh, thank you very much for proposing to participate in this podcast. I'm really excited to be uh, here with you today and to discuss this important topic of the war on terror. Gloria, it's our pleasure. But let's start with a very general question, because when we invited you as a guest for this podcast series, we also asked you some suggestions of which topic do you think we should have addressed. And you suggested to discuss war and terrorism or war on terror. But we know that currently with the war in between Russia and Ukraine, we seem to talk about other issues concerning the law of armed conflict, international humanitarian law. But therefore, for a thematic perspective, why do you think that terrorism and war is still an interesting question to be discussed? Why don't we, we shall focus on this issue, although it seems to have no, lost importance in the news? Indeed, nowadays we are always talking about the war in uh, Ukraine and we seem to forget that this is not the only armed conflict that is plaguing the world. And uh, it's true that we are speaking less about terrorism now because of this and also because of COVID. I mean, we have been absorbed by these COVIDs and it has made the headlines for two years. Then we had the war in Ukraine making the headlines. And we might think, okay, terrorism, is it something old and not, not really present anymore? It was something very high on the agenda in 2001 after the 9-11 attacks. And now we are not talking about that anymore. The U.S. has left Afghanistan. So probably everything is solved. Unfortunately, the issue is not solved at all. This remains one of the biggest threats to international security. And this has been acknowledged very clearly also by the UN Security Council. Also, it has been discussed by the Human Rights Council. So I think that states are still very concerned about the issue of terrorism. And we should all be concerned. We should all be concerned because it has not disappeared. You've seen on the 2nd of August this year, we had a targeted killing made by the U.S. against the head of al-Qaeda in Kabul in Afghanistan. We did not hear so much about it in the news, but I mean, it's a huge thing that the U.S. has left Afghanistan, and but now they, they are still conducting targeted killings against the head of al-Qaeda. So it shows that the issue has not disappeared at all. So you have like two extremes. Terrorism is extreme in its projection of violence, but you have the other extreme of an amount of counterterrorism measures that have been adopted by states and billions, trillions that have been spent to fight terrorism with also humanitarian consequences related to those counterterrorism measures. Since you have mentioned the strike against al-Zawahiri, let me ask you a couple of questions about this dynamic of the war on terror and being at war with a terrorist group. How is this different from a regular war or regular armed conflict? What is the difference? And is it really possible for a state to be in an armed conflict with a group like this? And would you say that still the United States are in an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda, for example? The thing is that when we start talking about terrorism, suddenly we have the impression the usual criteria we have under international law are not valid anymore, that somehow the war on terror is something special and it's something that goes beyond you know, the classification of conflict that we know under IHL. Actually, I would say that 
The law is there to provide criteria that would apply to every type of armed conflict. So the thing is that with the war on terror, what we call the war on terror or the fight against terrorism, it is definitely possible that this is part of an armed conflict. But then it depends on whether you faced with a group or an organization that corresponds to what we call under international humanitarian law, an organized armed group. So if you have a terrorist group labeled or designated as terrorist, which is for the purpose of international humanitarian law, an organized armed group. And if you have then armed clashes opposing this organized armed group with a state, a coalition, etc., then you have to check that you know, the intensity of violence has been reached. If you have those two criteria, you can certainly say that this is an armed conflict and then international humanitarian law applies. But this is not necessarily true for all types of terrorist groups. And I would say it's rather the opposite. We tend to say, well, it's a terrorist, especially when it's a jihadist group. We say, well, it's a jihadist group, so it's an organized armed group. And I say, wait a minute. Let's check whether this is really an organized armed group for the purpose of international humanitarian law. And so the presumption should not be that because we talk about terrorist groups or groups designated as terrorists, that they are immediately organized armed groups. They might be, but maybe not. Your question raised also the question of terrorist networks. So, for instance, can we say that Al-Qaeda is a transnational organized armed group? Because that would lead to huge questions from an, an international humanitarian law perspective, right? Can we determine that a network of different groups is actually in itself an organized armed group? Actually, this is more a fantasy, right? We, we, we see that they share the same ideology and therefore we quickly jump to the conclusion that this is just a global organized armed group. In my view, this is not a global organized armed group. I think that we still need to look at each armed conflict situation and to see whether within this situation you have an armed group that corresponds to an organized armed group for the purpose of international humanitarian law. I would say that, you know, the fight against terrorism is a little bit like Janus. It has two phases. It has one phase that relates to armed conflict, when you can demonstrate that you have a group that is organized with intensity of violence. And it has another phase which is prominent and that relates to peacetime. And so fighting terrorism is normally done through law enforcement. Uh, this is a, a law enforcement task. And the armed conflict side should be like one part of it and certainly not the major part. Let's suppose, therefore, that there is an organized armed group labeled as terrorist, which can carry out intensive armed fighting against the state, so that we are facing an armed conflict in, in the legal terms. And But the opacity uh, and the lack of knowledge about the armed group labeled as terrorist also concerns usually the membership of the organization, which is a key information to be acquired for the enemy, because as we know, under international humanitarian law, during an armed conflict, it is not unlawful to use lethal force against the members of the enemy organization against which there is the armed conflict. So how can we identify who is the member of an organized armed group that we label as terrorists? How can we identify that there is a terrorist, an alleged terrorist that the enemy state can target and kill? 
from an international humanitarian law perspective, once you are in an armed conflict situation, the majority view is that you can definitely target and kill fighters. I use the, the term fighters because there is no combatant status for non-international armed conflict. So that's why I'm using the word fighters. And when I say fighters, I'm referring to members precisely of organized armed groups. So indeed, knowing who are the members is essential in terms of use of force because they are targetable while civilians who might share the same ideology who might be very close to certain groups designated as terrorists, remain protected under international humanitarian law. It's a key distinguishing feature to know whether we are faced with a member of an organized armed group, I mean by that a fighter, or whether we are faced with civilians who are protected against attacks. This is the principle of distinction, no? that is, international humanitarian law calls the principle of distinction between civilians and fighters or combatants, yes. Exactly. This is, we say, the basic rule of international humanitarian law. That's the title of the rule, Article 48 of Additional Protocol 1 says, the basic rule. And this basic rule belongs to customary law and applies in both international armed conflicts and non-international armed conflicts. So precisely, if we are not able to distinguish or to know who is a member, who is a fighter, how can we even apply this basic rule of international humanitarian law? We can't. Now, we have two problems here. The first problem is a factual problem that you mentioned, Paola. The opacity will mean that many groups designated as terrorists are not going to distinguish themselves. They are not going to wear uniform. Of course, you have situations where they wear uniform. If you take the Islamic State in Syria, they were in black with the black flag. There you know, you see, okay, these are the fighters. But it's not like the, the majority of cases where the members of terrorist groups or groups designated as terrorists will distinguish themselves like that. So in the vast majority of cases, they do not wear a uniform. So, okay, how do we define membership from an international humanitarian law perspective? And actually, it's like for organization that we discussed earlier. The international humanitarian law treaties are not elaborating upon that. They are not determining who are the fighters. And in my view, the best definition that we have so far has been found and developed by the International Committee of the Red Cross. In the famous guidance on direct participation in hostilities dated 2009 there, you have an attempt by the International Committee of the Red Cross to clarify that. And the position of the International Committee of the Red Cross is that you need to check that the person has a continuous combat function. Within the group, naturally, continuous combat functions within the group, because a person might have occasionally no, the opportunity to participate in the hostilities, and this does not turn this person into a fighter if he does not continuously. That's, that's what is meant by the International Committee of the Red Cross. So you're exactly right. In the guidance on direct participation in hostilities developed by the International Committee of the Red Cross in 2009, the ICSC clarifies that we might have two situations. One situation where you have a person who belongs to an organized armed group and who is a fighter. To determine whether this person is a fighter, you need to determine that this person has a continuous combat function. 
that the function of this person is to take part on a regular basis in the hostilities, but it's based on the criterion of function. If you can establish that, then this person can be targeted and killed at any time. But as we said before, it will be very difficult to know generally who are the persons with this continuous combat function unless you have a heavy intelligence. Now, the second possibility is a situation where you have a civilian who will take part occasionally in the hostilities. This is direct participation in hostilities. When this happens, this person is not becoming a fighter. The person remains a civilian, but this person can be targeted and killed during the time, at the time, this person is directly participating in hostilities. So here, your analysis is based on the activities of the person. So it's more looking at, okay, what is a person doing now, presently? If the person is laying mine, then this is direct participation in hostilities. You don't need to prove that this person is a fighter, a member of the group. So their membership does not matter. This is the activity. So, Gloria, is it my understanding, however, that not every state engaged in um, fighting against so-called terrorist groups have accepted the International Committee for the Red Cross, the ICRC, guidance on um, membership and direct participation in hostilities? How these states have dealt with the problem of identifying uh, who to target? So this is why, from a pragmatic perspective, the notion of membership remains essential. But when you are faced with terrorist groups, often you simply do not know who are the actual members and who are the ones having a continuous combat function. This has led states to find different solutions. So for instance, something that is not very uh, well known, but which has been used, is the use by the United States of what we call a social network analysis to determine who are the members of a terrorist organization. The social network analysis is a tool that has been developed by social scientists in order to understand initially criminal groups. So that was used also in, uh, for law enforcement purposes, for instance, to understand how the mafia works. You can use a social network analysis. The crux of this tool is to say that you have to identify the nodes within the network. And when you have nodes that are being very big, meaning, for instance, you have a military commander, the military commander might have uh, contacts with, with various people. So you have like more ties going around this important person in the network. And this tool, so this tool developed by social scientists, has been used for targeted killing purposes, trying to identify who were the nodes who were having the, the biggest contacts with some prominent figures of terrorist organizations. And this, from a humanitarian law perspective, is very problematic, obviously, because you don't really know if those persons are fighters or if they are simply the mother, brother, cousin of a prominent figure of this terrorist organization or group. You don't know if those persons are, for instance, ideologists, which for the majority of uh, international humanitarian experts would not be considered as targetable, right? But they might have heavy contacts with many persons. So you see that states have tried to find ways to circumvent the both practical and legal issues around the notion of membership. And that those 
ways to circumvent these, uh, these practical and legal issues have led to many mistakes and have led to an expansive use of deadly force against persons who are certainly connected to terrorist organizations, but not necessarily members. Yes, we have read, for instance, in the headlines, a journalist who was killed you know, based on this social network tool that you mentioned because he had to interview a prominent figure of a terrorist organization and through the cell phones he was identified as a close contact, but he was a journalist and he was killed during a so-called targeted killing operation. Gloria, you have mentioned this practice of targeted killings. Now, let's assume that a state is satisfied that a certain person is a member of a terrorist group that is a party to an armed conflict. So the person fulfills the criteria, whatever they are, continuous combat function in the guidance of the Red Cross. Does this mean that a person like this can be targeted anywhere in the globe? I mean, we have heard of this narrative of the global war on terror, the global battlefield. And we have had a very recent example that you mentioned of Ayman al-Zawahiri that was killed in Kabul, in Afghanistan, uh, whilst he was just on his balcony. He had finished his prayer, he had stepped out, he had no rifle or bomb in his hands, and he was just killed. Is this practice lawful? And how is it problematic under international humanitarian law? Yes, the issue of targeted killings and drone strikes is very present still nowadays, as you, as you mentioned, this is still a current practice. And it raises the important question of the geographical scope of application of international humanitarian law. So the fact of determining whether an armed conflict exists is the first step, right? To know whether international humanitarian law applies. But then a follow-up question is where does it apply? So I would like to come back to one of the first drone strikes and targeted killing that was used by the U.S. in 2002 in Yemen. And so this was in relation to the conflict that was ongoing in Afghanistan against al-Qaeda members who were present in a desert in Yemen. And at the time, Yemen was a country at peace. There was no armed conflict there. But the U.S. decided to target and kill al-Qaeda operatives in Yemen in connection with the conflict that took place in Afghanistan. So here you have the issue that actually you ask yourself whether international humanitarian law applies in third states. So in states which are not involved in an armed conflict situation. And so here you have two schools of thought. You have one school of thought, which is to say that actually the conflict follows a person who is a fighter, who has a, a continuous combat function. So that then what you need to establish is the existence of a nexus, a link with an ongoing armed conflict situation. So it's the nexus-based approach, if you want. If you take this position, then it would say that the strike in Yemen in 2002 was governed by international humanitarian law and therefore killing al-Qaeda operatives would not constitute a violation of international humanitarian law. It may well be, and it is the case, that it remains a violation of use ad bellum of the United Nations Charter if you do not have the consent of the territorial state to conduct such an attack, but from a humanitarian law perspective, it would be lawful. Now, 
This is very problematic in my view as a, as a position, even if from a technical perspective, I think it's convincing this argument of nexus. But from a humanitarian perspective, it's very problematic. Imagine that in Geneva, a ISIS operative would be here near the station and let's say it's a unique window of opportunity to get this high-ranking member of uh, the Islamic State. Would we be comfortable with the idea that this person can be targeted and killed and that we can have so-called collateral damages, civilians being killed around. I think that if this would take place in Switzerland or in many Western countries, the public opinion would be completely shocked. We would have huge reactions. When it happened in the desert in, in Yemen, well, we did not have such reactions. But you see that with such a position of nexus, you do have the problem of leading to the conclusion that from a humanitarian law perspective, it's fine to target fighters wherever they are and whenever, which is really problematic from a humanitarian perspective. This is why you have another position that is also a position held by the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is to say that we should not create a global battlefield and that actually international humanitarian law is limited in geographical scope to the territory of the belligerent parties or the territories that are controlled by the belligerent parties and not beyond. So then if it's if I take this theory in Yemen, then you would say that this attack is not governed by international humanitarian law, but it's governed by human rights law. And there the result is completely different because it becomes an extrajudicial killing and a violation of the right to life. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Gloria. That's very clear and, of course, very challenging. And we understand why the issue of terrorism and war is still a very hot topic that we should not forget. Now, it's time for us to wrap up because we are running out of time. Before closing this episode, if you don't mind, we would like to bring you back to the old times where you were a student at the time, QD, the Centre Universitaire de Droit International Humanitaire, which is the predecessor of... Oh, these the, were good times. Yes, this was is the predecessor of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights, the institution of which you are now the director. So you have had a long career bringing you up to the top of the institutions where you were a student at the time. So, uh, so I understand that in 2003 and 2004 cohort, you were a brilliant student uh, at, uh, at the QD Center. Do you have any kind of story or anecdote that you would like to share with our listeners, with our current and future students uh, about uh, the old time, some anecdotes concerning a professor, whatever. I have so many anecdotes. I have to tell you is that certainly my year at the University Center of International Humanitarian Law, which was how it was called at the time, was my best year during all my studies. I have always been passionate about international humanitarian law, international human rights law, and I studied before at the Graduate Institute. And when I was a student at the Graduate Institute, I was trying to find courses on humanitarian law, human rights law everywhere. So I was going through, you know, the curriculum at the University of Geneva, at the Graduate Institute, anywhere I would take those courses because I was passionate about that. And so when I finished my studies at the Graduate Institute, I had a meeting with Professor Korb because I had had a six in 
public international law exams twice in the year. So I'm still very proud of it. Six is today. A, the maximum grade in Geneva, we shall say, because in Italy, six is a sufficient grade, while in Geneva is the top grade that you can get. No? Yeah. So you see, I'm still saying it now because I'm still very proud of it. And I think uh, Professor Korb was, uh, is such a wonderful professor that I was extremely proud of it. And so he invited me to, to meet with him. And he told me, okay, now, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I would like to pursue my, my studies, uh, but I don't want to do anything. I want just to study human rights law, international humanitarian law. And he told me, well, you're lucky because we have just created now the University Center for International Humanitarian Law. And then he told me, well, you know, you did not study law because I studied international relations first. I said, you didn't study law, you didn't do criminal law, so I don't know if you are going to be accepted. And he said, but you have such excellent marks, just try it. And I will do a recommendation letter for you. And so my colleagues were applying to different master's programs. And I said to myself, it's that or nothing. So I did everything, a motivation letter that I revised at least 10 times. And I applied and everyone was totally telling me, well, you have no chances. You know, it's for lawyers. You are not a lawyer. And I said, oh, come on. I mean, I had very good marks. I hope it will work, etc." And when I got accepted, I was jumping. And I have to say that, yes, for me, it was one of the, my best year because I had all the courses I wanted to have. And I had wonderful professors. And you had this excitement of having, you know, something, a new institution that was being uh, created. And so this, uh, this was wonderful. And this is why I'm so attached also to, to the academy to, today. You mentioned that I was a student. I think I did all the possible positions at the academy. I was a student. I was a teaching assistant. I was an external professor when I, was, when I came back just from, from the ICSC at the University of Geneva. And ultimately, I became director. I never thought I would become the director of the academy, really. <laughs> This is very inspirational because this shows that with, with the good motivations, good commitment, and really to be stubbornly pursuing our dreams, uh, every every young student, every young scholar can then succeed, the students can succeed. So it's a good inspiration. So congratulations, Gloria, for the great career uh, that you have achieved uh, in the past years. Thank you, Paola. Congratulations, Gloria, and thank you again for having blessed us with your presence today. Thanks also to our listeners for having joined in. I hope you enjoyed this first installment in our series. Please let me remind you that all the materials relevant to today's episode are linked in the show notes and that all of our episodes are available on the website of the Geneva Academy and on platforms where you usually listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And Subscribe if you do not want to miss any episode. And goodbye, and please tune in for the next one. Goodbye. Bye and thank you. You've been listening to In and Around Wars, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with Geneva Academy alumni. You can also check the Geneva Academy's website at www.geneva-academy.ch to find more resources and upcoming events on contemporary issues of international humanitarian law and policy.